From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Today, we welcome Law School Dean Michael Kaufman. Dean Kaufman is departing from LUC Law this summer to become the Dean at Santa Clara Law School in California. In our discussion, Dean Kaufman reflects on his tenure as Dean, the current events that shaped his leadership, and what makes the LUC Law community special. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Welcome to The Podvocate. I'm your host, Matt Doran, and I'm excited to chat with LUC Law Dean Michael Kaufman. He's done it all. Clerked for a federal appellate judge, litigated for securities and civil rights clients as a big law attorney, served as a school board president of a large district, given review lectures to students studying for the bar, taught and published, and of course, he has been Loyola University Chicago's dean for some years now. His has been a kind and calming voice in an increasingly harsh and hostile world, and he has shepherded the school through some challenging times. He comes to us today to reflect on his time at the law school and his hopes for the future. Dean Kaufman, welcome back to The Podvocate. Thank you so much. It's a really honor to be here. Well, the honor is ours. Uh, I'm going to dive right in. This is not a political show, but as law students at a school that promotes social justice and advocacy, something particularly done under your leadership, uh, the outside world's politics can regularly penetrate our discussions in the classroom and outside it. Uh, and it also informs our interpretations of the law and precedent. Uh, America has been running a fever. Uh, since 2016, the election of Donald Trump, the Me Too movement, the death of uh, George Floyd have raised our collective temperature. Have you noticed a difference in the law school student body in response to these national events? And, you know, are today's law students noticeably different than students in years past? Why, thank you for the question, uh, Matt. I think at Loyola, you know, I've been here for quite some time, um, three decades plus, there are common themes that have um, threaded through the, the lives of our law students in all my years here. Um, and so from my point of view, that foundation of sort of commonality is probably stronger than the differences. So if I could start with those common threads, that would be helpful. And then of course, there are some, I think, um, permutations on those themes that are really uh, strengthened in the last year or so. Um, but always in my time here as, as Dean and as faculty, I'm a, at Loyola, our students have been characterized by a sense in which they come to law school to make a living for sure, to have roaring careers, but beyond that, to use their talents and their their education in service to others. Uh, either um, Even if they go to big law, um, so many of our graduates, for example, have been dedicated to do public service on school boards, as I did, but also on city councils uh, in doing pro bono work. Uh, in, in service to the community. Um, and they come to law school, I think, with that sense, that passion, that fervor um, to do good with their degree. That has been a constant theme in all of my time at Loyola. Uh, I think part of it is um, our Jesuit Catholic mission and heritage that calls uh, students here for that purpose. Um, and I think in some ways it's part of the culture of the water here that people come here to support each other in that endeavor. Certainly the faculty and the staff are committed to that as well, but students come here with that, with that passion. So they're inclined, in my experience, they're inclined to do 
work outside of themselves, outside of their tight communities, and really think about how their skills can be used for the greater good. That theme that has been constant in my life here has really been um, strengthened, I think, in ways that are really palpable in the last few years in a fever pitch that you described in your question. Um, so the distinction between law school and life, which Loyola has always been sort of, uh, in my view, a, a positive um, thin line has become almost uh, disappeared in the last year or so <clears throat> for the good in the sense that our students are really unable to, for good, um, distinguish between what happens in the classroom and how it's gonna affect their lives outside the classroom. And that goes both ways. So um, they bring into the classroom their, their lived experience, their personal histories, their personal um, struggles and challenges, um, but also their passion to do good in the world. And they are, for, to their credit, um, unwilling to see how the law school educational experience is unrelated to life. Those are double negatives, but in a positive sense, I think the connection between education and impact has been eviscerated. And that's a really good thing. Um, so students expect more from faculty, more from staff, more from administrators in the sense that um, they want us to help realize their aspirations outside of the school. And that's really great. They expect more from us by way of our mission. Uh, I think they come to Loyola thinking that we are a Jesuit Catholic Law School in dedicated service and public, public interest and also the, the greater good. And they want to hold us to that mission, which I think is all to their credit. Um, so I've seen a sense of strengthening of that passion, that, that sense they want to use their education for, uh, for impact. Um, and in this, this era, um, the need is greater than ever to do that. Do you think that there's a, how do I say this? If I were to compare, and if you say you've been there 30 years, so if I were to compare or hear from the 30 years, so if I were to compare a 1990 LUC law grad with the 2020 LUC law grad, do you think that uh, there, the 2020 grad is better able to target the social justice issue that he or she wishes to address upon graduation rather than let's say a 1990 graduate who might say, I'm interested in social justice work and I'm gonna use my law degree to do it in a more amorphous sense. Whereas now uh, students are graduating with a more targeted approach. That's interesting. Um, I think maybe students now are thinking as first year students and second year students right away how their education is going to impact uh, their communities and are doing the work um, in law school right away as, as volunteers or, or as part of the classwork in law school. I think and primarily because we hadn't developed clinical opportunities in the 90s like we do today. We didn't have the Public Interest Center or the Rodin Center. We didn't have as many opportunities for students to become involved as students in the work outside the law school as we do now. And that's to our credit, in my view. I mean, we, I think legal education generally has advanced tremendously in terms of experiential learning and opportunities in the last 15 years. Um, so students in the 90s may have come to law school with that passion, but knew they had to sort of wait till they graduate effectively to you know, advance that passion. And they knew they probably had to balance that with um, more traditional law, law uh, careers. I think students these days have more opportunities to actually exercise their skills 
as law students and um, aren't going to wait till they graduate. Uh, and that is to their credit. So that's how I would frame it. Maybe so much, not so much targeting as it is um, immediacy about that. I, I appreciate that, although, of course, it only feeds into the idea that the, the young generation, be it, you know, Gen Z or millennials are, you know, now, now, now and, and impatient. <laughs> but but perhaps uh, perhaps this is something that uh, a little impatience is a good thing to have. Yeah, I wouldn't see it as impatience as much as it would be on the positive side, um, not seeing the division between theory and practice. And I think that's also something that the law school has frankly done a much better job at. And again, back to my comment about increasing opportunities for live client experiences, for example. My predecessor, David Yellen, now 16 years ago, thought that every student at Loyola should have a live client experience before they graduate and required that way before the American Bar Association did for law schools generally. And that was a recognition that um, students really learn through experience, through hands-on learning. And if they can learn in counseling a real client and, and understand as second year students, for example, um, how messy that is, how nuanced that is, how human that is, um, they become as law students, fully invested in their communities. Um, so it's not about their impatience so much as it is about realizing that that's part of learning. It's a really important part of learning in law school as well. I, I appreciate you hearkening back to um, your predecessor's um, role as dean. From when you became dean up until now, uh, right prior to your departure, how has your role as dean shifted, if at all? Yeah, great question. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, when I first became dean, I had, I had already been associate dean for academic affairs for quite some time. So I thought about ways in which I, I was hoping that the law school would grow both in terms of its pedagogy, in terms of its curriculum internally, but also in terms of its impact. And I had a um, fairly strong vision of what a Jesuit Catholic law school could do um, in the next five, 10 years as part of my deanship and try very hard to advance that vision when I first became dean in all kinds of ways, um, in terms of communication with our faculty and staff and our students and our alumni as well. And that vision was really about building on our, on our distinctive strengths at Loyola, which had been uh, built up over 110 years in our history. Uh, but first making sure that those distinctive strengths were authentic, that they weren't just mythologies, that they were real, that they were shared by the entire community. And then once we had a sense of what those strengths were, to articulate them, name them, and then make them visible, match onto them and leverage them, frankly, and build on them as our distinctive values. That was my sort of first wave of scene. Um, and so beyond that, the next step was sort of to incarnate those values in the life of the law school, both in terms of new pedagogies, new techniques for teaching and curriculum, also in terms of our impact. And then of course, uh, the pandemic hit. And in some ways, the, the reason I thought about trying to build on distinctive strengths was recognizing that there were challenges, um, external challenges really coming to law school that were really serious. And that one way to meet those challenges was to um, articulate our distinctive strengths and realize we can't be all things to all people. There are 190 law schools out there. You know, what's different about Loyola um, that would make us distinctive, it, um, both in terms of what's true to us, who we really are, but also in terms of what our, um, what our competitive advantages would be, frankly, in the marketplace. 
and realizing that that was some a way to sort of buffer us from the seas of competition, but also um, you know tuition increases, access and affordability issues, the value proposition for law schools, all of which I thought were both threats to legal education generally. Um, and all those threats, Matt, really were exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, in my mind, you know, the sort of three categories of threats to legal education pre-pandemic were access and affordability, sort of the tuition issue, making sure students could afford education and that they had access to it. Um, related to that, the, value, the sort of the business model for education generally was sort of in my mind flawed in, in serious ways that were so tuition dependent and that were, created a really bad cycle for students and for universities as well. And then the value proposition, making sure that um, education, higher education and new education as well were still valuable uh, and making sure that value proposition was, was articulated. All those challenges were exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, affordability and access were, you know, really a, a, um, ripped to shreds by the pandemic in terms of um, uh, people's livelihood and their uncertainty, their family situations, their work situations, but also in terms of um, the differential effect of the pandemic uh, for families and people of color. Um, so that was a real, real threat, I think, to our, our value proposition as well. Um, and just the the whole idea of um, what could legal education add by way of value at a time when we were um, threatened, you know, threatened by a pandemic. Uh, and then, of course, we, in my mind, um, experienced a racial re reckoning in last summer that um, it was a threat from the pandemic in terms of its disparate impact on on people of color, but also was a, a reckoning in and of itself, separate and apart from that. And then more recently, the um, what I would call a threat to our institutions of government, our the fragility of democracy, which was laid bare by January 6th and the post-election um, activities. Those sort of three waves um, in the last year plus have exacerbated the, again, the um, challenges that we faced before the pandemic, but it had become challenges in themselves. So we became in, really in, in crisis mode at the law school in, uh, in March, March 15th, you know, of the last year. And, um, in crisis mode, we brought the team together and um, our, I remember our first conversation as an administrative team and as a faculty was, what are our enduring values? What are our guiding principles that we cling to in a time of crisis? And fortunately, we had articulated them. Um, they were our enduring values pre-pandemic. Um, you know, and of course, number one, one was always going to be the health, safety, well-being uh, of our students, faculty, and staff. But that was embedded in our enduring values or instinctive strengths uh, of current personnel as care for the whole person before the pandemic. So it was a really authentic uh, enduring value and guiding principle. And then everything sort of flowed from that from March 15th onward. And that's really been our, our, our strength, our, our rock, um, as we really confronted constant uncertainty in challenging circumstances or summer into the fall and now into the spring as well. Um, so it's a long way to answer your question, I think, uh, in some ways, the work we did as a team before the pandemic was um, invaluable in helping us navigate these incredibly rough seas. But my role changed. It, it changed from a, a more you know five to ten year thinking to thinking about navigating the pandemic, but also thinking about pivoting uh, and making sure that we, we emerge stronger as a result. I, I appreciate your your perspective on 
taking a step back and saying, why are we here? What are we doing? What are our values that we are using to guide our educational philosophy? Do you think that in light of the pandemic and the um, some of the issues that it's laid bare, that that tactic of taking a step back, looking at one's values and deciding where we go from here based on those, is that going to be what makes or breaks both the legal education and then particular schools in general? You know, I think it's fair to say a school that, and just as I've, I've been reading about law firms that are saying, we can't wait to go back to business as usual and both clients and attorneys saying, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> no, this, this, is, this has really changed things permanently. Do you think that schools that don't adapt, that go, you know, as soon as uh, inoculation has reached critical mass, that they're going to go back to business as usual? Do you see those schools ultimately crumbling? Do you see the legal education being forced to make a permanent shift in the way that it does business? And if so, are values the way to make that one that's student-centric? I think, um, like big law firms, there are going to be some law schools that won't need to adapt, that will simply survive based on their history, but their reputation, and their the perception of their value. Um, for those who are not, um, you know, in the top, let's say, top 10 of law, law schools, I would hope the top 10 law schools would do this, frankly. Um, we. I guess got off a dean's meeting where we're all in this, all this together, and I have tremendous respect and admiration for all my fellow deans, and I would hope that they would be interested in doing that. I would think that though the um, the incentives for the top ten law schools to do that aren't as strong as for the others, um, unfortunately, <laughs> because I think these incentives are good. Um, so for those law schools that I think are guided by 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 leaders who understand this dynamic, they will adapt. For those who are not, frankly, it's gonna be a, a, a sad, I think a sad result. Um, you know, there are law schools that um, entered into the legal education market in the last 10 years um, that probably won't survive this if they can't adapt, um, sadly. Um, but for those who do adapt, um, they will emerge stronger. I, I think, um, you know, I hate the phrase new normal um, because there's nothing normal about it anymore. I prefer, this, prefer the phrase for a sweet spot. I mean, I think hopefully we've learned some valuable lessons from the pandemic. I really think honestly that we have learned them at Loyola pre-pandemic again, and they were accelerated by the pandemic. Um, and if we can rely on those lessons learned and really um, latch onto them, we will find a sweet spot in legal education that's different from what it was 15 months ago, but better, stronger. Um, and that will be a sweet spot in terms of um, teaching techniques, modes of learning. Um, it will involve some measure of technology, but not um, full technology. There will be a sweet spot between, you know, what can be delivered best online and remotely in terms of access and the like, and what can be better delivered only in person. Um, and we've learned a lot about um, the fact that instruction can be delivered pretty well online, but community building cannot. Um, we take one example of a sweet spot. So what is the perfect mix of instruction that can be delivered online and that will give um, students access to education remotely 
for those who cannot be here physically present, for example, for all kinds of reasons, and yet also make sure that our, our students are, are uh, building community, have a sense of belonging. Um, and that may require some on-campus um, events and on-campus programming. That's really hard we've learned to do remotely. It, there are things you can do to help that, to mitigate those remote aspects of community building, but um, it's hard to replace the on-campus experience for community building. So it's one example of a sweet spot that I think a really um, savvy educational leader of this law school and Dean Harris will be that, will be able to figure out exactly what that looks like for Loyola going forward. And we'll be able to put that into place. Um, as well, there's gonna be a sweet spot outside of, of Loyola. I mean, we have spent the last year, um, we revised our mission statement over the summer with the input of our faculty, our students, our staff, and our alumni and our community partners. I'm really proud of that. Um, and we spent the last year beyond that, really incarnating that mission through the work of our committees, as you know, that includes student representatives on them. Um, incorporating those lessons from that, that work um, into our uh, recruitment efforts for students, our admissions policies for incoming students, our hiring efforts, faculty, staff, and administrators, um, our student codes of conduct, all will make us a better law school in the future. Those will be sweet spots as well. That's interesting. I, I appreciate that term. And we, we don't need to speculate, but I'm, I'll be curious to see how, if at all, the Loyola graduate is different in 2025 from even 2020 or 2015. That'll be, and, and I think if, if the school and any school that follows uh, Loyola's lead looks to its values and uses those as the launching pad for what changes do we make, I, I think that the salient characteristics of the 2015 class will be the same as the 2025 class. Uh, on this topic, you mentioned about how if you think about the law school as um, being within a marketplace, our, you know, the school's graduates are its product, essentially. What are you most proud of in your product? You know, what are you most proud of uh, among the Loyola graduates? Not necessarily of career fields or, or money made, but just simply, you know, and, and I think probably getting back to values, what values do you think uh, are you most proud of that the school is able to instill and cultivate among its uh, graduates? There, there are so many of them, but let me share with you um, what our colleagues in the world have told us about our graduates that makes me proud. Um, and it all has resonance for me, but it's so nice to hear it from objective third parties. Um, so I think I may have mentioned to you at some point when we talked about um, the law school in the past that we spent a lot of time when we could um, face to face visiting law firms in the Chicago area and beyond Chicago as well, um, but also organizations that, that practice law. So nonprofits and legal service organizations. And we asked them, we visited them with um, our, our, our advancement team members and our um, career services folks. Um, and we had breakfast or lunch with these groups. We met with managing partners of firms and organizations as well as recent um, associates at the firms. And we talked about, we thanked them very much, first of all, for um, hiring our graduates, uh, many, of, many of whom were in the room, um, but so many of them you know, had been put in positions of leadership at law firms 
organizations. Um, and we asked them, what more could we do um, to make sure that our graduates are ready for their, their um, practice in that environment? And then we talked about the future of the practice of law and what skills in the future um, law graduates would need to serve clients in the future, five, 10 years down the road. And invariably, the answer came back, um, interpersonal skills, what they call sometimes soft skills. I hate that phrase, soft skills, but it refers to sort of the, the body of interpersonal skills around um, empathy, engaged listening, really good counseling, interviewing skills, um, negotiation skills, um, a sense of uh, perspective taking, putting yourselves in someone else's position and, and seeing the world through their eyes. Um, all those so-called interpersonal skills or strategies were what the law firms universally, uniformly in all of our visits, and there were many of them, said that law graduates would need in the future. And then the next sentence out of their mouths, and this is again uniform was, and your graduates always have had them. Those skills that are sometimes hard, we think are hard to quantify, hard to teach, our graduates had been recognized for having them. And it, you know, in, in different formulations, but always sort of the same point. And there's also a sense in which um, the people hire law graduates for a living throughout the, the world, essentially now, we're saying our graduates had a sense of gratitude that they were given, they were given an opportunity um, by coming to this firm or this, this law organization. They rolled up their sleeves. They weren't gonna squander the opportunity. Um, they, were, they were not entitled to be there, but they earned their right to be there in their minds. They were capable and, and conscientious and hardworking and dedicated and they were value centered. All those things, um, uh, by the way, uh, there are surveys now beyond our, our own, own focus groups. There were surveys taken um, that really validate that same thing. The, the, the qualities that distinguish great lawyers from really great lawyers are these interpersonal skills and our graduates have them. I think they are disposed to have them when they come to Loyola. I think they're sort of self-selecting. Part of it is our Jesuit Catholic identity and mission. Part of it is a message they get from admissions, I think, that um, they are supported here and they are supportive of each other here. They're not jerks. They're not, um, one way to frame it is, you know, uh, they are not the most important person in their own lives. You know, they have a lot, they, they want to serve others, but, but with their talents and their new skills. And that tr translates to being really good lawyers. Uh, I mentioned perspective taking a minute ago. In my mind, that is the single most important skill that uh, law graduates can have. The ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, of course, your client's shoes, but also the adversary counsel's shoes, your negotiation counterpoint skill uh, shoes, whatever you can do to put yourself in someone else's mindset will make you an incredibly good lawyer. And our graduates have that skill. It's not easy, it can be taught, it can be habituated, but our graduates, I think, are disposed to have that skill by virtue of their upbringing and by, by, by virtue of their approach to the world. And I'm very proud of that. That's really great. And that, that, that leads me to the, my comment, which was, as you were saying that, I was thinking of all the things as you look, for, look forward to uh, legal education and what might shift uh, in the wake of the pandemic, 
that might be one thing where you say, you know what, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And whether it's, you know, we're doing this well in the classroom cultivating this or whether the admissions office is doing such a great job of selecting just the right crop of students, either way, you know, if these are the people that we're churning out, maybe this is one thing we should let well enough alone, which is great. And I imagine it's got to feel good, at least for the kind of person that you are, um, that I've come to know, you know, maybe a different dean would simply measure it by how many students go into big law or how many students are 20 years later giving back to the law school, which is not to be ignored or discounted. Um, but I think if you're looking to see whether or not, you know, are we turning out good people who happen to be lawyers rather than necessarily good lawyers, that's certainly, a, you know, excellent feedback. So that's, that's really encouraging to hear. What's cool about this from my point of view is that um, distinction that's sometimes made between um, you know, metrics around uh, lawyers who go out and become really good practitioners in big law and versus sometimes versus lawyers who are really value centered and have really great interpersonal skills. That distinction has been proven to be false. Um, the, the, the kind of graduate I'm, I'm describing who's, got a, who's really good with interpersonal skills, really good at perspective taking is gonna be, is therefore by virtue of those skills gonna be the great lawyer the greater lawyer, um, because those are the skills that make you a really, really great lawyer. Um, and so th that's why I don't like the word soft skills. I mean, because it, it suggests that there's something else called a hard skill that's much somehow much more important or much more, you know, um, realistic. That That's really a false dichotomy in my view. And I think all the data proves that to be, to be false. So it's great that our students are so good at interpersonal skills because that makes them incredibly employable as we're hearing from the employers and also really great traditional lawyers in any traditional framework as well. That's great. I, I wanna ask a, a both a personal, but what some might consider to be a, a softball question, but I, I think our <laughs> listeners would be very curious. Who is your hero of the law? And, and I'll answer real quick for me, it was Sir Thomas More when I read uh, Man for All Seasons back in high school at 17 or so. Uh, although secretly it's probably Vincent LaGuardia Gambini. But, you know, who is uh, who is your hero of the law, fictional or, or real life? Um, I can't give you one, but I'll, I'll give you a couple if that's OK. Um, and I have to start in, sort of at home. Um, Dean, Dean Nina Appel uh, is my hero um, in legal education, uh, a mentor, a role model, an incredible source of information for me, a true hero in the law. Um, and along those lines, Diane Garrity is will always be one of my true heroes in the law, um, a, a heroic leader in her own right, who, as you know, um, you know, founded, I think the world's greatest child law center um, with an incredible amount of wisdom and grace in doing that, a true hero of mine. I have heroes that you know too, uh, Dean Jim Fought is a hero, an interpersonal hero uh, of, of the unparalleled kindness and, and goodness um, Jamie Carey, who is retired, is a hero of mine here. Um, Zelda Harris is a hero. The administrative teams here are heroes, and I, you know, I, I, I should name them all, but they're they are real true heroes. Um, outside the law school, um, my my hero uh, is the judge I worked for. Um, my first job out of law school was the clerk for the Court of Appeals on the Sixth Circuit, with a judge named Nathaniel Jones, who died about a year ago. Um, in his 90s, and um, Judge Jones um, 
spent a long time in his career as being the general counsel for the NAACP and argued a lot of cases in the Supreme Court and lost them all. Lost the cases of Milliken against Bradley, big cases involving um, school desegregation uh, and lost almost all, all of them. Um, and yet um, through his courage and inspiration and insight and his example uh, was my hero. Um, he was he was my judge, and um, you know it was. I I have loved teaching law school. I have loved um, deaning law school um, immeasurably. But working for that for that judge for one year out of law school will be, be the best experience of my life. Transformative in every way. Um, I just love love working for him. Love working with him, and the opportunities I got to be with him were just um, unparalleled. Um, he spent a lot of time with Nelson Mandela. Um, trying to create the new co uh, constitution for South Africa. He is clearly a global hero, but I, to be able to work with him that close and a per, uh, personally and to know him as a person um, is in my way in, an incredible experience and he will be, be my hero forever. That's that's super cool. I, I want to get your thoughts on something. I think it's so important to have that kind of person in one's life, particularly when you're young and not necessarily impressionable, but you're, you're, you're forming your own identity. Um, but it sounds like Judge Jones was relatively fortuitous in your life. You could have, you know, applied for a clerkship somewhere else in the Seventh Circuit and gotten somebody else who was a real jerk and it would, you know, that person would not have been your hero. So my question is, you mentioned earlier the criticalness of having perspective and you know, self-perspective as well is also so important. And so being able to know yourself to then know how you can help others. So how, you know, is that a way to go and cultivate and find good mentors? You know, what is your advice for law students who are looking to have that kind of person in their lives to build that relationship for someone who can be their hero? You know, does it start with being able to take a step back and figure out what you want uh, how do you advise going about establishing, finding that person and establishing that relationship? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll share with you, first of all, that um, as you surmised, um, I was incredibly lucky um, to work, work for Dean, for, for uh, Judge Jones. When, when I got the job from him, I was like, oh my God, it's Judge Jones, to your point. I mean, I would have been thrilled with any clerkship, you know, any any district court or, or, or state court, or court, but it happened to be him, and it was just a complete—I wouldn't say it was a fluke, but it was a complete blessing, uh, fortuity, um, and it was just a magical experience. Um, so a lot of luck is involved, and a lot of fortuity is involved in who you happen to be near at the right time in your career, where you really crave mentorship, and who you might connect with who is willing to give it. Um, so a lot, a lot of it is, is, is fortuity. But beyond that, um, my experience has been that people really are flattered if you want them to be your mentor. Some people are just, you can try to sense they're not gonna, they're not interested in their own time. They're not really willing to give up of themselves for this purpose. But beyond that sort of threshold, once you figure out that someone may actually be a good mentor or have the skills, the sort of the kindness and the empathy skills and the and the willingness to help skills that you need as for mentorships. Once you figure out that you've got sort of a, a, a person like that near you, 
uh, I would say go for it because that person, given what we just said about that person already in terms of the qualities, is going to be so flattered and so honored um, to be asked to be a mentor um, that I think I would just sort of suck it up and, and you know, swallow some degree of courage and say, okay, you know what? Um, I've been near you uh, for the next last couple of months. Uh, we've had a chance to work together a little bit. Um, I've seen you. I have tremendous respect for you. I admire the way you you handle clients and communities and uh, each other. And um, I would just be so honored to, if you could give me some advice. Um, and I'll take you to lunch at a time when we can do that, you know, God willing. Uh, or I'll, you know, I'll get you on a Zoom. And just a few minutes of your time, I would it would just mean the world to me um, if I can get your advice or, or some counseling. And start slow, you know, maybe a 15-minute conversation or in a hallway conversation and then make it into a lunch and build a relationship. Be, be patient with that. Um, but um, but you take the first step and say, I'd like you to, like really to be, um, to get your wisdom and advice because I have some respect for you. Um, I, get, I think that will be received very, very warmly by people who you want to be your mentor. For people who don't, you know, you don't need those people. You know, they're not going to be good mentors anyways. Right. It's I in a past life, I was a tech entrepreneur. And there's a kind of pithy expression of when you're raising money, if you ask for money, you get advice. If you ask for advice, you get money. Yes. And I think that speaks to the same kind of quality where you're, you know, depends on how you approach the situation. If you approach it as a, you know, gimme, gimme, you're liable to not establish a good mentor relationship. But if you approach with humility and, and ask for advice, people usually go out of their way to give it. That's exactly right. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, if you could go back to the start of your deanship, is there anything that you would do differently? You know, I, I've had a chance to think about that question a lot. Um, there's no nothing in particular that comes to mind. I don't mean to sound kind of um, conceited about that. It's not that I've done everything right. To the contrary, I made tremendous mistakes in my deanship. Um, I say, though, usually that they have been mistakes of the head and not of the heart. Um, so I think I would be easier on myself, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I would recognize that I will I will make mistakes um, and then to learn and grow from them and not take them so um, dramatically or personally and to sort of keep moving. Um, but um, I've been blessed to be surrounded by, as I mentioned earlier, an incredibly strong administrative team who has always picked me up when I made mistakes, you know, and, and call, or called me on it in a very positive way. Um, so uh, and I can't even say I would surround myself with incredibly great people because I have. Um, so it's been an incredibly wonderful journey here. And I don't know that um, I would want it to be any other, any other way in the global scheme of things. Um, there are small, tons of small mistakes I've made that I wish I hadn't made. But I, but again, to my point, um, I probably in a more general way would give myself more slack. Fair enough. That's, that's a good answer. And that's, that's one that I think uh, myself included, some of our younger listeners would hope to achieve uh, as we prosper in our career. I, you know, I'm, I'm 37 and I can tell you there are already uh, points in my life where I could skip those six months. I could, I could just erase those and that's okay. I, I can lose those. That's right. Um, so it was a really have, bad meeting I just had. I just like, what, 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 what was that all about? Yeah. Well, if I can, if I can keep it to a meeting, that's good. If I get a bad meeting, if I'm yeah. having six months to a year or more, that yeah. that's a bit more rough. So I'm, I'm very glad to hear that there's yeah. 
there's nothing you'd really trade on uh, yeah. from your deanship history. Well, uh, I think a lot of people like, say, you know, ouch, when they do something like that. I, my, my expression has always been yeesh, yeesh, <laughs> yeesh. And there have been a lot of yeeshes in the last few years. So Fair enough. Sure. Um, kind of the, the uh, inverse of that question. What is the thing that you're most proud of uh, having achieved as dean? Well, I think there are sort of discrete things um, that I, I think outside people would say um, are starts with the pride. Uh, the weekend JD program, which really David Yellen um, was the brainchild of, but which we built here together, um, was really an innovation in education that I'm, I'm, I think we should all be very proud of. It's become really a model for the way I think in which we can think about the future of education. Uh, back to your first question about what we learned, you know, and what we can maybe find the sweet spot about in the future. That model of hybrid education, which has both an on-ground component and also an online component, may just be the best of all worlds. Not um, in lockstep with that model, but that's sort of an idea, one way in which you could find a sweet spot, I think. And to, to do that at a time when it was, um, you know, risky to do it was, I think, really, really um, an amazing achievement. And I'm, I, we should all be very proud of that. The, the outcomes of our students in my deanship have been really great. Um, to their credit more than to mine, but we're all proud of it. Our bar passage rates are way up. Our employment rates, even in the pandemic, are outstanding and higher than ever. Um, the credentials of our incoming class are great. Our diversity of faculty, students, and administrative team has increased immeasurably in the last five years. I'm very proud of that. But um, when all is said and done, Matt, um, what I think I'm most proud of is we've done these things and um, we've done it in a way that maintained what I think of as the, the, the core to core values here, which is love and kindness. Um, and that sounds sort of trite or pablum-like, but um, we have an incredibly strong community of faculty, staff, alumni, and students, because I think there's an ethic of loving kindness um, that permeates all relationships here and that actually makes us want to change the world for the better, but also wants us, makes us want to be good to each other and to accomplish good results that are sort of tangible, new weekend JD program, but not lose that ethic of loving kindness I'm most proud of. That's great, that's really great. I, I, I don't think that's Pavel. I, I think that is a, a great sentiment to have and it, it speaks back to what you said earlier of you know, are you making reactionary decisions or are you simply responding but reflecting back on your values and then using that as the driving force to how you affect change going forward? Um, you know, as you approach uh, the end of your tenure as deanship here and beginning your uh, deanship at, um, is it Santa Clara University or University of Santa Clara? It's Santa Clara University. Okay, as you, as you approach your deanship there, um, you know, obviously I'm sure you're thinking about your legacy here and how you'll be remembered. If you could distill your legacy into one adjective, what do you hope that it would be? Yeah, it would be loving kindness. Um, I mean, it's a hyphenated word. Um, and related to that, um, perspective taking also probably a hyphenated word. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think perspective taking is the quintessential um, skill for lawyering and also for living, honestly. And it's very much connected to loving kindness because if you have love in your heart and you want to be kind, 
it is almost by nature your goal to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to see the world through their perspective, so that you can then help them. Um, before you make that leap, though, to put yourself in someone else's shoes, take their perspective, you really don't know how best to help them. So in my way, my way of thinking, they're both, they're both connected. And if I can leave a legacy here of loving kindness and perspective taking, that would, I think, everything else would take care of itself. Um, as much as you're headed to Santa Clara University, you know, you're, you'll still be felt here as a presence. Your leadership will leave a, an imprint upon this school. So I, you know, your future in legal education will still exist, both kind of impliedly here and then very expressly at Santa Clara. What excites you most about the future of legal education that you'll still be involved with? What are you so uh, excited about that man, I can't wait to see how this unfolds within the legal community and the, and the legal education field? I think this pandemic has given us license literally licensed from our accreditation bodies, the American Bar Association, the American Association of Law Schools to innovate. And I'm not a big fan of innovation for disruptive purposes. I don't, innovation for itself is not, is not a value, but um, innovation where it allows you to experiment with things that you want to do that you think are values-based and, and, and unleashes some potential to do that and makes you unafraid to fail in doing that is really a positive thing. So I'm really excited about sort of the, um, the willingness that, that our clearing bodies have, have given us in this era, hopefully it'll continue, but also the university has given us and also our faculty, our staff and our students, the license they've given us to think new about the ways in which we do things. So I've had a vision before I became Dean about what a, a, a real Jesuit Catholic law school would look like if it were true to, to that mission in its most inclusive form. Um, and I've written that up um, in terms of sort of 10 points of light that I think we'd look like as a law school if we're really true to that mission. Um, and we've done some of those things um, in my deanship, but not, not all 10 of them. And we haven't done, done as many of them as I like to deeply. Um, but now I think we could do that. The, the sweet spot that I think of more globally is we can become a different uh, educational institution, a really transformative learning community. And I, and I really mean each one of those words to be important separately. Transformational, a learning environment, and a, and a community. Um, and within that, there are sort of 10 points that we can get there to do it with. But um, I think we can get that done. I think Loyola is on track to get that done. I think Santa Clara is willing to get that done. The opportunities there are very, very similar to the ones that are here because it also is a judgment cap with law school. It has the same kind of ethic behind it. Um, I'm excited to really start that work there. I think Loyola, frankly, um, has sort of charted a course along that path um, that we can follow out at Santa Clara. I've, I've kidded, I mean, I've, I've never really left any job I've had, uh, Matt, in my life. When I, when I left the, the clerkship with my judge, we've become incredibly close, you know, in the many, many years since that time. Um, he came to Loyola a year or so ago and he started the um, Nathaniel R. Jones Professor of Law position here that Neil Williams now occupies, and I'm really proud of that. So, so that, that connection has never gone away. When I left the law firm, um, I'm still incredibly close to everyone in that firm. We get together once a month, now remotely, for lunch in a, in a group um, setting. And I expect the same thing to be true of Loyola. I, I can't ever imagine leaving this place. I have dear, dear friends, loved ones here. 
that I've you know made made friends of over the last 34 years. Um, we will stay incredibly close, and we kid each other that um, Santa Clara is going to be Loyola West. Um, and I, I I really look forward to collaborating. I mean, as two really great Jesuit law schools, the potential for collaboration across school lines is enormous and really exciting, and I think will happen. That's that does sound exciting. Well, uh, I'll be graduating in a matter of weeks, but I. I think I speak for next year's Podvocate Board and future boards to say you are always welcome to come back uh, and share your thoughts on what's happening in the legal world. Dean Kaufman, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations to you in advance. Um, you. This has been a great series. You all have done a phenomenal job with the Podvocate. Um, it's really one of, uh, you asked me what I'm most proud of, um, and you kidded about this earlier, but um, the Podvocate is a huge source of pride for all of us. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Take care. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reiner. Our editor-in-chief is me, Matt Doran. Special thanks to today's guest, Dean Michael Kaufman, for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.